welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Today's guest is a second-generation ex-member of the Unification Church slash Mooney's Cult. As part of a coalition of ex-Moonies called Deprogramming Imperialism, they are in the process of researching and exposing the true story behind the cult and its relationship with American imperialism, international fascist networks, and intelligence groups. Folks, I give you Elisa Monjob and aka Anti-Cult Person. Thank you so much for dropping by. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, guys, I've got another heavy-hitting show for you here. This is part three of the Patriot Games series, so it has to be. In the first two installments, we looked at the bizarre milieu involving the right stuff, Charles Bowsman, the American Gladio, and the curious network of white Russians tied into them. At the forefront was oligarch Constantine Malfi, often described as Russia's George Soros. Another figure who turned up in this exploration is one familiar to listeners of the farm. That would be good old Sean Moon, the son of Sun Mayan Moon, founder of the cult, uh, that is to say the Unification Church, if you guys are not aware of that, and also the uh, sometimes U.S. National Security Front and certainly the uh, South Korean uh, Security Front as well. It's had a lot of uh, very close relationships with various intelligence services over the years. In recent years, Sean went solo, establishing his own sect, the Rod of Iron Ministries. Here, it's known as the Church of the Machine Gun. Sean has been very active in far-right circles in recent years, to say nothing of intrigues. As we chronicled last summer, a potential follower of his has been implicated in former Japanese Prime Minister Abe's assassination. And of course, good old Sean was president was present in D.C. for the January 6th event. And there's just so much more. I mean, his brother owns an arms company, uh, which in light of some of the things going on here is very curious, to put it mildly. Uh, but this is only scratching the surface. Sean has a new compound in the heart of Texas. At, the, at one of the most symbolically located of places. Recently, Trump himself has ventured there for a rally announcing his 2024 election bid, further adding to the mojo of it. No doubt Sean was there and potentially the paramilitary force he has been raising. What is that place in, in Texas, by the way? It's, it's, it's Waco. Yes, the um, 
the site of uh, the David Koresh standoff, and even more recently, that epic almost Old West-style shootout between various biker gangs. Waco has a very colorful history on any number of levels. So, yeah. It's uh, the latter that concerns us, uh, especially some of the things that he's been up to here. We're taking a deep dive into some of the characters who have latched their car to these efforts, possible links to the American Gladio, and how this ties into the Game of Thrones currently playing out. So yeah, we've got some ambitions here. And on that note, let us start the show. Okay, before we really get rolling here, I thought the audience may appreciate hearing a bit of your origin story. You're a second-generation Mooney who defected, so can you shed some light on what it was uh, like while growing up under the moon and who spurred you to leave the cult, Anissa? Yeah, um, so I, yeah, I was born and raised into the Moonies. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience, to put it lightly. Uh, a lot of bizarre and overwhelming psychological pressures um and just like weird things you know they have you try to do like you know get up and do like uh five o'clock in the morning uh readings <laughs> of uh reverend moon's word and stuff like that which i always you know slept through anyway i was never i was never personally a very good moony because i'm disabled <laughs> so i couldn't do all of the um the more intense moony activities that were reasonably expected of others but I was also there was the experience of a you know being seen as an outcast and weird and wrong and bad for not being able to do those things um I left when I was around 17 uh and the reason I left was uh I had stumbled uh therefore shortly upon the blog how well do you know your moon uh or it might have been what is on the moon um but at that time, I had learned about the tragedy of the Six Marys, and I had started, you know, sort of questioning things because I was like, is Moon not the man that he made himself out to be? Like, clearly not if this is the truth. Like, and then I... I uh, Can you actually uh, break that down for the listeners? That what was it, the tragedy yeah. of the Marys? Yeah, so the tragedy of the Six Marys was basically uh, Moon raped and coerced a lot of women into having sex with him uh, in the position of quote unquote, sort of like a wife thing in the Mary position, um, biblically. And uh, for like womb purification, precarium uh, sex stuff, 
And um, so that that was horrific. And, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like to, you know, have to deal with that. Uh, just like terrible stuff that, you know, he was involved in from the beginning. Lots of weird, like the Moonies now you don't think of as like a, a sex cult, but that's that's the origins of the group. Um, which does, you know, obviously play over until today with their uh, very strict and uh, stringent purity standards. Um, that's basically obviously still all about controlling people and their bodies. Um, so that and, you know, finding those things out and learning, you know, meeting actually queer people and finding out, oh my gosh, you guys are not evil. <laughs> um, and also simply just like wanting to get out there and get laid. I was 17, you know, I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to leave this behind. It was too much and absurd and weird. And so I left. Well, that's as good of a reason as I can think of there. Yeah. Um, so I know we had talked about this a little bit, but it seemed like your background was a bit typical for people who grew up in the Unification Church. And it just, it seems like, it was almost designed in a sense to make for very awkward families. And I mean that because uh, from what I have at least seen uh, in my uh, you know conversations and so forth with former members of the church, a lot of the individuals who were raised in it, they had older parents and often the, um, the union that had been arranged, if I'm not mistaken, by the church hierarchy as well. So... You know, this is potentially a situation where you have two people together who are getting close to the end of their child rearing years and, you know, they may not really have very much in common. So it, you know, it wasn't going to make for maybe a stereotypical nuclear family to begin with, if you will. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, well... That was a bit of my experience. My parents are definitely older um, and we're an arranged marriage by Moon. Uh, <laughs> so I can definitely see like there there's some strange families there. However, the Moonies do very much uh, like harp on the, the importance of a nuclear family. Um, regardless of the fact that sometimes, you know, the families don't always operate like that because sometimes, you know, friends like at a lot of the cases like other church members would take in kids where the families were going in through a hard time or something like that um so it didn't always work that way it was more like the church is your nuclear family you know what i mean yeah well that's that's kind of like what i was like supposed getting in i didn't really yeah it properly but yeah i sort of feel like it's almost like the the families were set up in a fashion to where they were and many of them would probably be almost kind of sort of broken families which you know probably some of the thinking went that this would um ensure that the children maybe became more attached to the church so that would track honestly yeah i have a lot of suspicions into the way that they made matches but that wouldn't surprise me as well just given the uh importance of isolation to a movement like this some of that is probably intentional yeah, certainly. All right, so the main thrust of our discussion is Sean's paramilitary activities, but before getting to that, so let's lay a little backdrop here. So the Rod of Iron Ministries maintains a headquarters that is located in the Poconos region of uh, Pennsylvania, which is in and of itself a longtime stronghold of the far right. 
And he, uh, that is Sean say has established a compound near an equally symbolically located place, the aforementioned Waco, Texas. So can you give us a quick overview of Waco's significance to the far right and when Sean, uh, and uh, when did Sean set up shop there? Yeah, so the Waco thing obviously goes back to the uh, Branch Davidian siege. Uh, there were a sort of offshoot sect of the Seventh-day Adventists who would started collecting a bunch of guns and weapons, and obviously David Koresh was a pedophile. So there was some really, you know, there was weird stuff going on there, but the ATF caught uh, a hold of this, and they raided it, and then, you know, subsequently the FBI got involved. Uh, and a lot of the right sees it as an intentional act of state violence against people exercising their religious right and their right to bear arms. Uh, I'm not one to defend the actions of the ATF and the FBI in this case. However, there has been a significant amount of, you know, like very right wing uh, conspiracy and sentiment. And it it's around the around the incident. And it's really um, been a big, you know, a big recruiting point for them. Um, just to see something so horrendous happen. And it's really sort of brought people together uh, on the right, um, just because it feels like for them, I guess, that they've got like some sort of very, you know, obvious enemy. Um, and, you know, the reverberations from this event have been happening, you know, have been going for quite some time now. Uh, you can see inspiration at uh, Waco, like inspiration at, from other terrorist attacks, like uh, Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which was very much inspired by the siege at Waco. Um, and then, it you know... It happened on the same day, too, uh, April yeah. 18th, uh, which is, you know, a very significant time with the far right, as long as followed by um, April 20th, uh, which, you know, before it became the National Smoke Out Day, it was actually a major holiday. and Well, not major, but it was a bit of a holiday in Nazi Germany because it's uh, Hitler's birthday, so... Blech. Gross nasty i think smoke out day is much better <laughs> keep it that keep it that um but yeah so yeah i mean clearly like clearly we're still feeling the aftermath of the waco tragedy um even in events that are more recent like the unite the right rally and the january 6th riots um so it's it's still very much a a i'm trying to think of the word here like a uh a coming together point for the right. Yeah, rallying point, if you will. Yes, that, that is the word I am looking for. <laughs> All right, well, um, give us an... Oh, well, so when did Sean move in there, by the way? Oh, yes. Sorry about that. Um, so they bought that land in uh, around 2021, I believe. Yeah, I think it was actually, like, what, shortly after or before the January 6th event, which is also interesting. Yeah, especially given that that land is being specifically used to train people uh, for war against whatever Sean says, to quote him, deep state globalist Marxists or something like that. <laughs> so they're clearly up to some stuff. Well, do you want to give us an overview of the paramilitary activities Moon's congregation has embarked upon? So um, it seems that they have been getting trainings uh, from several former special operations members that, you know, we'll go into a little more, uh, here in a bit, but they've also got ties to guys like Sam Faddis, a former CIA guy who led, uh, teams into Iraq before the invasion. Um, 
so a lot of the training stuff that they've sort of gotten um, through people like uh, Craig Salmon Sawyer, who we'll talk about in a sec, and another man named CJ Thompson, uh, they include things like learned survival skills, martial arts training, short and long range rifle and pistol work, uh, sniper techniques, close quarters battle, urban and rural fighting, small unit tactics, day and night shooting, and hard target training. Um, so they they kind of run the gamut of the, the trainings. They seem a little thorough. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, start getting into some of these characters then so that he's enlisted for this endeavor. So probably the big name is Craig Sawyer. Some listeners are probably familiar with this guy, but can you give us a rundown of his activities, please? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Craig Sawman Sawyer, is he's a former Navy SEAL. Um, he has a group called... Oh, let me see if I can find this. I think it's like veterans against child trafficking uh yeah but clearly he doesn't really care about kids because he's not speaking up about the kids that are being abused by rod of iron so that seems like an aside there uh anyway he's known for his QAnon adjacent posts uh he made some weird ones during 2020 uh and has you know obviously been doing so since um according to his resume then he he has also uh made a film called contraland about child trafficking Uh, And then he's also extensively trained with groups like the CIA, the FBI, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Department of State, on and on, um, on things such as multiple forms of combat, interrogation, covert surveillance and counter surveillance, nuclear weapons detection, and a whole bunch more. Um, So guys got a stacked resume. Let's just put it that way. Um, And then one of the training courses that is offered by his company that I believe is the one that Rod of Iron has been doing Um, His company is called Tactical Insider. Um, This course is called Red Dawn Response. And the description says it aims to, quote unquote, prepare our citizens to be very effective guerrilla fighters against our terrorist enemies if needed here at home, which, yeah, absolutely sounds like American Gladio to me. Okay, so how about this uh, Christopher C.T. Thompson dude? Yeah, so uh, C.J. Thompson Former Special Forces guy, Green Beret, um, he now does private trainings for groups like Rod of Iron. Uh, During his time in the Army, he fought in numerous direct action combats with Special Forces Operation Detachment Alpha. Uh, He's also trained Indigenous Forces uh, and served as a primary instructor in close quarters battle and advanced marksmanship. As an intelligence sergeant, he briefed senior military officials, conducted threat assessments, and led coordination for sensitive site exploitation on more than 20 combat missions. Um, And then from 2009 to 2013, he worked at SWU Inc., a government contractor, uh, where he developed course material and trained personnel ranging from almost every branch of service to numerous interagency partners, is what he said. Um, So take that as you will. Um, And then with that group, uh, SSU, uh, oh gosh, I might have made a typo here it's either SWU Inc or SSU and I I, (laughs) I'm not entirely sure so it's one or the other um but with that group he deployed a with his special missions unit and he filled in as regional cell leader during personnel shortages uh his briefs were also included in stuff the uh the briefs to the president um and he's claimed in his resume about successful targeting of priority enemies so it seems like he was involved with some uh some 
like targeted killing kind of stuff. All right, so this next guy is certainly a colorful one. That's uh, Cham Charles Sam Fadis. Uh, he uh, was a one-time military lawyer active in JAG who ended up working in the CIA Special Activities Division, or SAD, har, har, har. That's the CIA's paramilitary, uh, primary paramilitary wing, roughly the equivalent of uh, the military's Joint Special Operations Command, though CIA typically has to supplement SAD from JSOC. Uh, but despite Fantas's long time links to the CIA, he's been quite CIA since he retired. So what's his story and his ties to Sean? So he's been showing a lot. Uh, he's been showing up for the last several years at Sean's uh, Freedom Festival, uh, doing speeches and panels and such. Um, and so I, I think I think recently his more anti-CIA sort of stuff is I was reading a work of his in... Um, Oh gosh, what is this document called? <laughs> Perspectives on Terrorism, Volume 3, Issue 1. Um, but his piece of work in that seems to suggest that the reason he is upset with the CIA is because there is too much oversight and uh, too many reforms. And <laughs> so uh, he, I guess, felt too limited in the horrific stuff that he could do. And I, I would, I, this is something I would like to find more information on as well. But uh, like, that, that's what I found so far. <laughs> yeah, he's a curious figure. Um, he was a source for Annie Jacobson's surprise kill, vanish the secret history of the CIA paramilitary armies, operators, and assassins. Um, so, just wanted to quote here a little bit from this from pages three seventy nine and three eighty because it's uh kind of shows a bit to the lengths that he's been going to try to embarrass the CIA's upper hierarchy. And this plays into this paramilitary force that he was tasked uh, with training for Iraq uh, when they were getting ready for the run-up to the invasion. Uh, they were dubbed the Scorpions, and they were generally held as a great success. So anyway, this is what Fetus uh, was up to with them. Going from the book here, a neutral facility was chosen inside a hotel near Shakwala, Iraq. Each member of the Scorpions was stripped of his weapons and interviewed. Most of them were common criminals, according to Fetus. No military background whatsoever. General Shawana got paid per person he supplied to the CIA. After screening more than 100 men, the CIA team agreed that there were just 25 of the Iraqi Scorpions they were willing to fight alongside. But with close quarters combat training, Fana says a complex new set of unforeseen problems arose. The Scorpions were raping each other during trainings, said Fetus, which poses its own set of problems, you don't say, uh, including medical ones. What do you do when people start committing felonies during paramilitary training at a black site? They're committing felonies, but officially, they don't exist. And neither does the program. Betis had spent more than a decade engaged in covert operations across the near Middle East. Man-on-man -man sex is not unusual in this culture, he says. It's not frowned upon. It occurs. The fighters go home to their wives if they have them. But as the leader of the highly classified DB slash Anabasis operation, being privy to rape presented Fetus with an ethical and operational conundrum. What I was dealing with was non-consensual sex among the fighters sent by Washington. 
The ongoing rapes among the Scorpion fighters were reported to the Iraqi Operations Group at Langway. Headquarters sent Veteran Special Activities Division Officer Greg uh, Vogel to Kurdistan to assess the situation. It was Greg Vogel who'd saved Hamid Karzari's life in the bombing incident in Kandahara in December 2001. Vogel went by the code name Snake. Snake declared the Scorpions unfit for combat, according to Fetus. They were undisciplined, unskilled fighters now committing criminal acts. He told headquarters that the Scorpions were unable to perform any of the missions they'd been trained for. We are going to get good men killed for no reason, Snake warned. But the plan was to use the Scorpion fighters a move forward despite protestations from the CIA paramilitary team in the field. General Shahane was supplied with Russian MI-17 helicopters, millions of dollars worth of air assets, recalls Fetus, all painted with Scorpion logos, all bright and shiny and brand new. And at the center of the storm, his memoir, CIA Director George Tenet praised the Scorpions, identifying them as an agency-sponsored paramilitary group that produced extraordinary successes. General Shahana, Tenet wrote, served as one of the U.S. government's most critical partners working against Saddam's regime. He was a born leader with a significant following, someone who commanded respect of everyone who worked with him. Michael Hayden, who became CIA director in 2005, also praised Shawana in his memoir, Playing and Playing to the Edge, calling him, quote, a friend who has who was clearly talented and courageous. The discrepancy in opinion between the covert action operators on the ground and the top brass at the CIA is puzzling. According to Fetus, Washington wanted the Iraqi Jedberg story. What they got was an unmitigated disaster. So, yes, it's very fascinating how he frames a lot of this. Um, and again, it seems to be uh, consistent, I think, in some ways with what I kind of see is like a three-way split within the national security state between sort of the military hands, the intelligence hands, and then the operators. Uh, and the operators are, I think, kind of unique subculture. Of course, I mean, a lot of them, as I had alluded to before, already come out of the military in the first place. I mean, Fetus is no exception. Uh, so, yeah, you see here, I mean, though, I think, and especially... Uh, uh, precise attack on the cia's hierarchy and of course this book came out um i want to say close to a decade later when jsoc had uh, really assumed more power even though there was a bit of pushback against it from the obama administration so uh, yeah there's a lot of actually i guess it came out even later than that now that i recall but yeah it's um interesting i think that um you do see a lot of uh, frustration uh, going way back, really, to a lot of the operators who were out there in the field and um, effectively the sort of senior uh, professional hierarchy of the upper ranks of the CIA. There's always been that kind of dramatic discrepancy, and it's certainly, I would say, grown wider uh, going into the 21st century, to put it mildly. True. True, true. All right, so another celebrity special operator that uh, that's been they've been trying to enlist at least is former Green Beret uh, Tulum, I believe. Is that right? 
Uh, Tulam, I believe. Tulum, yeah. Tulum, okay. This guy apparently has his, his own Call of Duty Modern Warfare character, Daniel Ronan Shenandoah, maybe, based upon him. Uh, which I should point out is really interesting. I've um, I've talked a little bit about this in the subscribers section, but just uh, you know, really quick thing here: uh, a lot of video game culture has been really heavily infiltrated, and frequently a lot of gamer boards, YouTube channels, and this kind of thing are used uh, by various uh, actors. Let's just say for different purposes. Uh, certainly, I find it fascinating that in this case you have um, an individual with his own uh, character, Call of Duty, sort of intersecting in these circles. I mean, when you look at something like the Q operation, um, there was definitely an effort by some of the individuals in that to use gamer, uh, you know, YouTube channels and this kind of thing uh, to recruit individuals. And again, there are certainly some indications that there were broader connections to private military companies, all this other kind of stuff. And obviously, in the most recent uh, leaks fiasco that we're currently going through, once again, it was um, a gamer board where this stuff uh, first appeared on. And, you know, it's leaks generally don't happen uh, in D.C. unless there's a purpose behind them. So, yeah, it's. A fascinating thing when you look at the relationship between um sort of covert operations and psychological warfare of course uh, that's all you know housed within joint special operations command and the broader special operations command as well so again it's a fascinating component uh, to this particular individual in my opinion so just wanted to interject that but anyway what can you tell us a bit about his story and uh how he uh possibly got involved with moon's outfit yeah, so uh, Tulam was born in Saigon in uh, December of 1974. Uh, his family fled during the war, uh, and they came to America in 1979. Uh, his mother married a Green Beret, and his uncle was also a Green Beret, so from childhood he wanted to be a Green Beret. Uh, he spent, I think, 22 maybe years in the forces, um, being deployed all over the world on all sorts of missions. Um, and... I honestly, so from the documents that uh, that I've seen from Rod of Iron, uh, that says that they were trying to get him to come and do a training for them. However, I'm not sure if that actually ever uh, manifested or materialized or not. So uh, I I don't I don't particularly know the level of uh, interaction that they've had. Just that it seems to be that there is an open line of communication there, uh, and that they have been trying to get him there, and maybe by now they have. So I'll have to do a little more research on that. Another figure linked to this milieu is Joey Gibson and his uh, Patriot Prayer Group. So what's their story and how are they tied to Sean? So, yeah, Patriot Prayer um, is a Vancouver, Washington based right wing group. Um, they've, you know, <laughs> they're they're well known for intimidating violence at lots of events and uh you know showing up and brawling with people um very very much uh you know sort of like a, a right-wing militia uh so joey gibson was scheduled to show up at one of rod of irons freedom festivals a couple of years ago i don't believe he actually ended up making it uh however it there does seem to be that connection there between the two groups okay so uh 
Another uh, one of Sean's links is to Pastor Greg Locke, uh, who's a very interesting guy as well. Well, uh, what's up with this? This whole black robe <laughs> regiment that Pastor Locke belongs to for, to start off with. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so this black robe regiment is basically uh, a group of sort of militant pastors who are taking up a the mantle of a revolutionary war uh, myth that about some some militant pastors who fought the British, I guess. Um, so they're sort of trying to yeah, obviously do that classic, let's revive the past thing that fascism, fascists love doing. Fascism's what, what am I saying? <laughs> but um, so it, it seems to be this very um, large net of these pastors who uh, many of which have new apostolic reformation ties, I might add as well. Um, so very, very, a lot of sort of charismatic Christian uh, pastors and stuff are part of this. And uh, they're involved with um, several of these guys, including uh, Greg Locke, uh, are involved with uh, Mike Flynn's Reawaken America tour. And we're touring around doing that um in various cities they also oh yes they uh, obviously also um ties to mike lindell the pillow dude oh that's interesting um, yeah he shows up a lot in this stuff honestly it's kind of kind of wild well it doesn't surprise me i mean it seems like he's uh, become one of the sort of the unacknowledged uh, financiers of a lot of this stuff yeah definitely yeah oh for sure this is another interesting thing as well um, with the whole concept of the Black Robe uh, Regiment. Uh, this is actually something that Special Operations Forces had toyed with before. And interestingly enough, one of the more um, uh, prominent examples of this was in Vietnam uh, during the early 60s before uh, the buildup really by the regular forces when it was more being run by the Green Berets. But um, one of the groups that they had there, and the, I think it was the Mekong Delta, it's known as the uh, the Sea Sparrows, I believe. It was uh, almost this sort of quasi-Catholic cult uh, that had been set up there. And it was headed by this uh, individual known as uh, Father Yuen Lok Ho, I believe, Catholic cleric who had also been a colonel in the uh, Chinese Nationalist Army. Uh, that would be Chiang Kai-shek's uh, basically glorified drug cartel, especially in that era. But yes, he was uh, known as the fighting priest. <laughs> uh, but yes, he was getting a lot of support here from um, special operations forces. Uh, he was connected to some of the... Uh, individuals associated with General Edward Lansdale, who uh, during this era effectively uh, was heading one of the precursors to the Special Operations Command. I believe they called it the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, and then they had its own office and all this other stuff. Uh, one of his longtime colleagues, Bernard uh, Yao, was there. He had been an anti- uh, He'd been a Chinese uh, individual who had served as an anti-Japanese guerrilla during the Second World War and then had been basically a paramilitary advisor in a lot of these conflicts throughout the Far East. But yeah, they had, you know, essentially hit upon using this, I mean, almost glorified Catholic cult as a militia at this particular point in time. So, yeah, this is uh, 
It might seem a little wacky, but you know, we've we've definitely done this stuff overseas. Yeah. And let me let me also say that this is not something that's new for the Moonies. There have been Yeah, yeah, know, that's <laughs> this is something that point. they have a lot of precedent in being used as a paramilitary force. Um, so <laughs> it just seems the logical outcome, you know, of all of that whack history. Yeah, and you know, again, for those of you unaware, this is something I think that we have maybe tackled a little bit uh, in some of the latter uh, wacko episodes of the World Anti-Communist League series. But yes, certainly uh, getting into the Iran-Contra years in the 1980s, especially, there are some compelling indications that they were potentially being used as a paramilitary force uh, to assist in some of the efforts, especially like in Central America and those places. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And then, of course, uh, again, there's also, as we did cover at length, the historic links the church had to the Yakuza in Japan, obviously the big crime syndicate over there. So... There's definitely, uh, you know, this is something I've been harping on really since I first started looking at this whole network back around 2013 or so. There's definitely some strong indications that uh, drug money was a big part of the church's historical funding. And, you know, this was tied up in a lot of other paramilitary activities and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, again, you know, they also, the mainline church had also invested in uh, the arms industry at various times including other lots of other things and certainly when you look at a guy like sean where i mean his uh brother who's also tied into the rod of iron ministries is also running an arms company um you know there are definitely some unsettling parallels to prior operations involving the moonies and like groups in this respect and even really for that matter the whole thing with david Koresh too i mean there's certainly very strong indications that he was working as an arms trafficker. I know this is something George from Cab Dev has been doing some great work with on Jimmy Fallon Gong, but I mean, this is Koresh's stuff was also potentially tied into um, Iran Contra as well, which is interesting in light of the Moody connections there and again, Sun setting up SOP. So this is yeah. a lot of uh, kind of a past history here that. Uh, strongly implies that this group is more serious than people might believe that it is yeah i definitely agree with that all right so inevitably arch council for national policy man larry pratt would turn up in this milieu because he seems to always gravitate to these kinds of circles again a lot of listeners are probably familiar with this clown but for the uninitiated can give us a quick rundown of who he is and then how he got uh, linked up with sean so yeah, Larry Pratt, gosh, he's a multifaceted guy. These days, I believe he's with Gun Owners of America. Uh, he's somebody that I have not done as much research into as I would like to, honestly. He's one of the, uh, I'm planning to do a couple of uh, installations of this series on my Patreon about um, the Rod of Iron's connections to paramilitary guys, as well as other figures on the right. Um, and this is just one that I haven't delved into quite as much. Um, but he's very much involved in like the Patriot gun movement. Uh, and I believe he has shown up at the freedom festival several times. 
that Ron of Iron has hosted. And I, I see <laughs> there's some photos of him with Sean on their Instagram. So, <laughs> okay. As we head into the home stretch, let's do some speculation here. You've listened to my recent work on the American Gladio Network, obviously. After all, this was a major topic in parts one and two of this series. Is Sean and his church being used to establish another wing of this network? And how worried should we be about this in light of current events? So I think it is very likely that that is the case. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's reasonable to be pretty worried about it, given that there seems to be a very uh, organized uh, cultivation of these militias on the part of these former government uh, guys who are current contractors or uh, doing you know whatever. <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, who exactly they're working for when they're when their uh, resumes are the way that they are working for contractors and stuff. Uh, but that being said, I, I think it's something that I am personally worried about, uh, just knowing that this is by far not the only group that they would have involved with stuff like that. There are clearly there are clearly many others. Um, but the threat from this group alone, I think, is significant. You know, they they were they're violently like bigoted against quite a few groups of people. Um, and given the situation politically in our country right now, I think that the divide is only going to become greater with groups like this out there actively trying to play in the culture wars. Like uh, Sean Moon now is a rapper. His music is horrible and it's all extremely like mean and just like really, homophobic and transphobic and just like absurd stuff. Um, it, so I think that there is like a multifold threat from groups like this. There's obviously the threat to like physical well-being that they pose uh, and like their involvement at events like January 6th and the rallies preceding that. Um, but I, I would also say that there's quite a bit of like the Overton window stuff being, you know, played at here. Um, what with uh, just trying to like, yeah, play that culture war kind of thing and the information war. And that's a big part of what they do. But clearly there is that armed aspect as well that does really worry me, given all of the stuff that we have just talked about. <laughs> Yeah, and to add into that, of course, we got in in the first installment of this. I have the links up still for the FBI documents. But, you know, again, uh, going back into the 80s when the FBI was investigating some of these patriot groups, um, such as the Civilian Material Assistance, uh, the Sovereign Order in St. John, which we'll also be getting to here in a second, you know, there were... Um, indications that came out that they were receiving training from at least one uh, figure linked to, uh, I believe it was the 20th uh, Special Forces Group, either the 19th or the 20th, uh, which are the two National Guard uh, groups that are also certified as Special Forces, otherwise known as Green Berets in the U.S. Army. And they were involved in, you know, providing assistance to some of these groups. And uh, this potentially is one of the things that led to the FBI essentially being ordered to stand down in the investigation because there are indications from the FBI documents that we've seen that this was tied into the continuity of government operations, which would be consistent with 
essentially the original purpose of the Army Special Forces. I mean, this goes back um, to Operation Bloodstone in the late 40s before the Green Berets had even been set up. But the plan had been that, um, you know, at this point we thought we were going to have the nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union and we would be able to uh, knock out most of their major military facilities with the strike. And then from there... Uh, we would send in the elite commandos to uh, rally up with a lot of these anti-communist groups within the Soviet Union, form them into militias, and these would be used to take out what was left of the Red Army. Uh, so many of the quote-unquote militias that we were recruiting from from this group were, you know, again, a lot of people that later became parts of the whole World Anti-Communist League milieu, especially um the OUNB, the Ukrainian nationalists, who are effectively still a force to this day, uh, generations later, and certainly in the modern day uh, Ukraine. So originally they were sort of envisioned as these uh, paramilitary operators that we were going to use behind the lines and uh, recruited from some of the more militant groups within this community, like the, uh, what was it, the Ukrainian Patriotic Army or something like that, the UPA. So you know, this was something that they had toyed with as far back as the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. If you looked at a lot of the material on uh, Gladio, and again, Gladio was probably only the name of the Italian uh, component of it, but they had these these kind of stay-behind networks all over Western Europe in this era. It was similar to the whole clan with Operation Bloodstone, where you would have these special operators who would work with a lot of militias and domestic groups, in this case, to put down an invasion of the Soviet Union, or really more accurately, to put them into, plunge them into a guerrilla war. Uh, once again, there's quite an extensive litany of evidence out there that uh, various investigations in different European countries unearthed that far-right groups were being used uh, within this capacity, this was especially true in Italy and Belgium as well, really is very significantly in Belgium. So, again, this is something that there's quite a precedent for overseas. There is indications of this in declassified FBI documents that we were doing the same. And also, I will point out as well that uh, William Pepper, uh, the longtime attorney for the family of Martin Luther King, when he had been looking into the circumstances surrounding King's investigation, he had also interviewed several uh, former Green Berets who claimed that you know, it was a similar situation in the 60s where they were being used to traffic firearms and also provide paramilitary training to, in this case, the Ku Klux Klan in the South. So this is certainly not without precedent and you know, again, this is not, Sean's group would hardly be the only component of this. And I suspect that there's a wide variety of groups being used. Um, in Patreon, we're currently doing a deep dive into the I Am Cult, which first emerged during the Second World War. This was, or uh, shortly before it, I should say, very new agey. A lot of stuff like 11-11, Twin Flames, Mount Shasta were popularized or conceived of by this group. They were very closely tied to William Dudley Paley's Silver Shirts movement. They had their own militia, um, essentially, which was known as the Minutemen, ironically, within the group. Uh, so 
I am's making a big comeback now, guys. Uh, and, you know, if you've been listening to some of the stuff on Nonsense Bazaar, you know, there's possibility that there might be some more um, militant components to it, certainly, I think, on the information war front and maybe uh, beyond that. Yeah, this is something that I think uh, does raise a lot of concerns in this capacity. And it's a yeah. for us. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I was also just going to mention that, um, oddly enough, uh, the book Operation Gladio, the Unholy Alliance between the Vatican, the CIA and the Mafia, written by Paul L. Williams. Guess who has ties to Rod of Iron? Paul uh, Williams. He, I, I believe, has. Uh, let me, let me double check. Uh, Paul, I can't remember exactly how he has ties to them, but he does. I remember this specifically because I also then started being like, "What this book? Interesting." Um, obviously, there's a lot of true stuff in there, but I sort of wonder about like the way he might have spun it. Also, I noticed that he uses LaRouche uh, sources several times in there. He quotes the Executive Intelligence Review several times, which to me is just a little suspicious. I wanted to bring that up just because uh, if people are looking for more information on Gladio, maybe maybe not that book. <laughs> not that not that it's necessarily bad or wrong. Uh, I just don't trust some of the sources. And uh, he, he's got those rod of iron ties. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems to be about par of the course. I mean, when you get into these sort of subjects, it's always very suspect people that are reviewing it. Um, again, this is sort of something when we were doing the kind of sister series to this one the, involving the private military company Far West Limited. Uh, the group of researchers I'm working with on that, it really jumped out to us was just how many of the English language sources were tied specifically to Stanford and, uh, in many cases, the Hoover Institute. Uh, so you can see how most of the English-speaking world has been fed a very, very specific narrative about this. And sadly, I mean, even Peter Dale Scott, uh, I mean, is part of that. I mean, not that I think that Scott was necessarily consciously, because even he was one of the first guys to really point out the Hoover connections to this, but... Yeah, it's uh, just kind of fascinating that this whole narrative around such an important subject like that has been shaped by just kind of a handful of researchers in one specific area. And um, again, you know, some of them are connected to uh, Hoover and uh, some of the other links come from Palantir, who ironically were hired to investigate uh, some of the activities of Far West during the early knots. So, yeah, it's... It's something that you definitely need to keep in mind with a lot of this stuff. And also, too, probably the, the best book on Gladio is uh, NATO Secret Armies by Daniel Gleisner. So just my two cents on that. Yeah, that, that one seems to be pretty solid. All right, well, let's shift gears here for a moment. So Sean's closely connected to Charles Bowsman and the right stuff. These guys, in turn, are being supported by Constantine Malfiai. Described as Russia's George Soros, he's at a minimum a more clandestine version of Yvonne Prigozhin, uh, the Wagner head. Like Prigozhin, he's an expert in waging both information and paramilitary operations in the deep private. And through a version of the Order of St. John, which we're just going to get into there, this isn't the same one in the PACCON, uh, though I will emphasize. There's 
again, the whole legacy of the orders of St. John is quite complex, but there has been a lot of great research done by Kevin Coogan and others uh, that definitely indicate very strongly that it was being used to house various paramilitary assets, uh, potentially for the U.S. military over the years and different incarnations of it. It's It's been linked to quite a litany. Uh, the different versions of it have been linked to quite a litany of right-wing terrorism over the years. Again, they turn up in PatCon. They turn up in a lot of other stuff. Going back uh, to the early 60s, uh, they've always had long-standing links, both to traditional Catholic groups and Christian identities. So there's a lot of uh, extremists that have... Uh, cross paths with the various incarnations of the OSJ over the years. And again, the OSJ has often had many senior military figures connected to it as well. And that is very much true of this incarnation of the Order of St. John. One of them happens to be General William Boykin. So who is Boykin, you might be asking? Well, again, this is one of the guys who co-founded the Delta Force, who actually headed the Joint Special Operations Command, basically major figure within the special operations community and one of the sort of architects of the modern special operations forces. So, yeah, this is, you know, this isn't some like lowly private or gunnery sergeant or something like that we're talking about here. So, uh and now you know with this potential ties between the sort of saint john and uh mafia and that sort of broader network that he's involved with with these russian um oligarchs and uh these sort of descendants of white russians they may have potentially gained access to these paramilitary networks here in the united states which begs the question i mean who is sean setting up these networks for or conversely, is it being used as a kind of honey trap for Mafia's people? I noted one of Fetus's operations with uh, CIA in Iraq was turning Saddam's special operators to American aims. Again, that was the one we were just talking about before where they kept raping each other and what have you. So it was it was a disaster. But, you know, that doesn't mean he hasn't had successes in other places where the you know troops um, could be kept from uh, raping one another. Um, hopefully, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so what's your take on all this oh gosh so yeah um i definitely see that the moon network is an extension of the american intelligence and security state uh that being said that there is a lot of international collaboration like you were saying uh with a lot of these russian guys and obviously people from around the world or there wouldn't be a world anti-communist league to speak of um but I do see sort of like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, if it would be a honey trap or what. My, my, my initial opinion on it, though, is that it is just, you know, taking some very disenfranchised Americans and trying to turn them into, you know, a, a paramilitary force. Uh, and I definitely see, you know, obviously U.S. government collaboration with, in that vein. Um, but it's, you know, there's still a lot of details that are either hazy or completely lost to me on the subject just because it's not something that's super well researched, uh, like in depth by a lot of people and the information is just not easy to come by, uh, as well as the fact that a lot of it is probably not stuff that is even declassified at this point. Um, so there's like, you can observe stuff, but there's no way for 
to say, you know, I, I can't personally say I'm 100% certain I know exactly what's going on here, but I have some definite, uh, some, some very large suspicions. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously at this point, all we can really have is suspicions here, but I mean, it does seem like that uh, a lot of operators had supported uh, Trump's rise to power. Uh, that really seems to have been the principal uh, area he was getting support from, from the National Security Services. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, certainly, again, there was a lot of opposition from the CIA, from the FBI, from a lot of these other groups. And, um, well, the, uh, the special forces seem to have really uh, taken a beating, too, since Biden got into office. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of the ongoing investigations in Fort Bragg. Some of the criminal activity there has started to come out. Mm. Again, I don't know this, but um, obviously there were quite a few people drummed out of the military, out of the over the vaccines. Again, it wouldn't totally shock me if a disproportionate amount of them were from the special operations forces. So, uh, again, I do think that there is a very strong, maybe neoliberal uh, opposition within this particular community. And um, again, I it don't... definitely seems to be a factionalized matter to a large degree. And I don't, you know, and in saying this, I don't believe at all that they're anti-American or stooges of the Russians or anything like that. I just think that more in this case, they see the Russians as potentially being helpful if there is collaboration yeah, towards their own end. where I am too. Uh, they're willing to, you know, work with whomever to get their ends. And I'm sure those guys will be paid have handsomely for it too, so... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's it's sort of fascinating because you can really almost draw parallels to the historic uh, white Russian community uh, because really they were at the center of, you know, a lot of the Cold War intrigues and certainly the community in Paris uh, had a lot of links with the KGB around the Supreme Monarchist Council, but also, I mean, they maintained contact with the Americans as well. So, again, ultimately, I think that... Um, what they were really working towards was a continuation of the Russian Empire, which I mean, you should probably argue in a lot of cases they have succeeded to some extent, certainly in a reduced capacity. But I mean, there is still, uh, you know, there's still, I mean, a major international power at this point. <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of a case where, you know, you can see a specific community here that was connected, that was willing to work with both sides to achieve a certain ends. And, um, Again, I don't think that it's uh, beyond the the uh, realm of possibility that something exists here amongst the same kind of uh, nationalistic circles. So on that note, I suppose this is a good place to uh, wrap up. Well, uh, do you have anything you want to plug here or anything like that before we sign off? So, yeah, you can find me at Twitter at Colts Suck one word. <laughs> and my Patreon is just Alisa Majoub smashed together, A-L-I-F-A-M-A-H-J-O-U-B. And I would love, you know, for you guys to see what I've got there. I've got um, some stuff coming up, going more in depth about uh, some of these guys that we talked about today. And then there will be more installments from then. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for dropping by, Lisa, and um, definitely have to have you back here at some point to uh, keep us appraised and all the different developments with uh, Sean and all the other Mooney goodness, because it's, uh, it's always a topic we love discussing here. And, uh, <laughs> and as There's always, so much to it. <laughs>
as always. And thanks for having me on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, as always too, I mean, a big shout out to uh, Ed Kaufman. Uh, he's a big part of all these shows. This was Don Diligent, a uh, long time, the uh, Mooney Defector, who provided just so much incredible information during the original Wackle series. Um, he's such an inspiration to all of us and all the stuff that we're doing with these shows. So hopefully, Don, we are doing you proud here. Yeah, rest in peace. Well, on that note, then let us sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And with that, good night. And good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go Jay. We were ready. My people there, they're feeling me. Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. To quarry y'all, I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up, stuck down in this stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Say one, two, three, turn and mo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. Get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go About a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it. No need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer. Everybody even caught a realized if a farmer don't make cash money. When we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. On crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. 
If great white father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's a whole civilization. What?